Thank you for listening to this Lunchtime Talk produced by the Art Gallery of South Australia. In this live recording, the Art Gallery's curator of Asian art, James Bennett, explores the imagery in the Balinese astrological calendar on display in Isle of the Gods, Art of Bali. This is the second of the two talks. In fact, late relates very closely to the, the, star, the talk on the star calendar I gave, which is more about the macrocosm, the outer world. And this particular talk I'm giving here will be on about the inner world, the, the inner being. Uh, and last time when I gave the talk, we may remember that most of you, I think, were at that last talk. I mentioned about the awful uh, Lombok earthquake. Well, you know, the news has got, has got much worse. None of us would have imagined that a month later I'll be, be then talking about Palu. Uh, but it's very interesting. I suppose you know the case of that, uh, that young man who, Antonius uh, Gunawan Agung, who, you know, saved a whole plane load of people and then gave his life, you know, doing that. He was a con traffic, air traffic controller, you've probably seen it, and the plane was taking off as the earthquake started and everybody else fled from the tower and he stayed to direct the plane off, so he saved hundreds of lives and then he jumped from the tower but died. Uh, his name actually, his parents must have had some awful precipients about his, his destiny because his name... Gunawan Agung actually means profoundly meaningful and he has led a profoundly meaningful life and I think all of us <laughs> would like to somehow do that. Oh my God, it's happening everywhere. <laughs> okay, now, I'm not like a politician. I don't wait to give the, the news that you don't want to give generally uh, on a holiday. This is school holidays. And maybe some of you will be so disillusioned with me you won't come again. But I've got an awful connect, uh, confession to make. Uh, this talk was to be on the shroud, the death shroud. Well, I got it wrong. It's not a death shroud. <laughs> so it's very, very interesting, the story. And I'll talk to you a bit about that first because it does show a lot of you don't know kind of what we do curatorially about, in, you know, in... Rusty and I are constantly researching the collection all the time. And often these kind of talks are an opportunity to research much more about it. And this is a promise gift from Michael, who's here today. Thank you for coming, Michael. Uh, and Michael Saucers said, it's from Michael's collection, said that it was a death shroud. I had Adrian Vickers, who's I've mentioned before, the International Authority on Balinese, you know, art and culture and literature. He came through to look at the ex he came over from Sydney to, to look at the exhibition just after it opened. And yeah, it was a death shroud. So on Friday I thought, hmm, I need to do some more research about this. So, you know, everything works in circles. It's quite interesting because you know, a topic like this, you know, you just can't contact any Balinese, you know. You have to know who to approach and there has to be a degree of trust between you. So I sent an email to, it's funny because the guy I knew who I thought I could contact is a man in Madi, Maduata. Now, uh, his name is Pung, so I'll be referring to him. His nickname is Pung. I've known Pung actually 20 years since I curated a show of Michael's textiles in Darwin 20 years ago. So it was Michael actually brought us together 20 years ago when I began researching Michael's collection in Darwin. And if you're interested, those who use the library downstairs, if you look at my catalogue, Speaking with Cloth, Churita Dalamkine, there's photos of Pung in that and 20 years ago when he was much younger. 
Anyway, the reason I contacted Pung was he works with a textile cooperative in, in Bali, so he works a lot with, uh, you know, traditional cultural authorities. His grandfather, amazing, was a dalang, was a puppeteer, which, of course, in Indonesia, if you say somebody's a dalang, it means just more than just being somebody who does punch and judy. Like dalangs perform the great shadow puppet plays and are believed to actually have contacts with the other side there, believe the shadow puppet plays have all these profound overtones about mysticism and, and the balancing of cosmic forces and... And his father actually was a puppeteer who performed his last play at 98 and then went home and died. So it's an extraordinary kind of person. So I contacted Pung on Friday and I, you know, I sent him an, an email and some images, WhatsApp, and I said, can you tell me more about this shroud? And he said, okay, I'll tell you more about the shroud. I've got to go and consult a priest. So I went and consulted a priest in Madi, uh, sorry, Bawa. Uh, he was a pamanku. And the message comes back, it's not a shroud, <laughs> which I thought, oh, this is, this is interesting. What it turns out to be is actually uh, a cloth, a talismanic cloth for an initiation as part of the Pewintanan cycle of ceremonies. Now, what that is, is that it wouldn't have been used in the ceremony, it would have been kept by a priest who would have consulted it before the ceremony. In fact, my Balinese informant said, think of this as a map of a ceremony, which is very, very interesting. So uh, with the help of uh, Pung, there was much conversation backwards, forwarding email and WhatsApp. I don't know what curators would do without WhatsApp <laughs> over the weekend. So I'll try and explain as best as I can this cloth, which the label still should shroud, but in the next day you'll see it changed. So... You know, the, our kind of view of the cosmos, our view of the world is very different to a Balinese view of the world or actually an Indonesian view of the world. We tend to think what you're born as, apart from life's experiences, is how you'll die. That, you know, you're born as James or Rusty or Julie or whoever and that's basically how you'll die. You might accumulate knowledge, you might accumulate life experiences, but basically, that's your, your, you know, your lot in life, who you are. The Balinese worldview, and people don't consciously think this, but it pervades everything they do and how they perceive interactions and their, their, their religious and personal spiritual beliefs, is that actually this human dimension is a dimension where we change, where we actually become more human than human, that we actually go from an animal self through the course of our life, ideally you live a long life, to you at the end of your life, you have actually achieved a closeness to divinity. So in this is what they call, there's a circle of ceremonies, 30 ceremonies, 13, sorry, called the Manusia Yadnya. Manusia means humanity. And what that is, these ceremonies, the first one begins six months uh, before birth or, you know, in that period. And then through 12 ceremonies, you actually then more and more become human. You're ceremonially become human. There's a number of ceremonies after birth, like there's the first ceremony when the baby touches the earth, because that, there's always a danger if the baby crawls, its animal self will start to emerge on all fours. So a baby traditionally would only be touching the earth standing up. 
There's then you get to, there's a ceremony about puberty, there's a tooth filing ceremony, which probably some of you are aware of, which the whole aim of that is to flatten your teeth, again to remove you from the animal realm, so that they remove any suggestion of pointed teeth. So you, you filed your teeth flat. And then, of course, there's marriage. Now, the 13th ceremony, not everybody engages on. And the 13th ceremony is a one I mentioned, Perwinetan. And that ceremony is actually where you begin to start to, your divine self is brought out in a series of ceremonies. It can only be embarked upon by somebody, by a woman who's postmenstrual, or by a man who's had a family. This whole family thing is very strong in Bali. You know, if you don't have a family, you're kind of nobody. You've got no identity. In fact, in, in, if you're talking about somebody like even a guy in 30s, 40s who hasn't got a family, you still refer to them as an anak, a child. You know, that without a family, you haven't reached adulthood. Anyway, these set of ceremonies at the end, the Pawanatan, they actually are to begin that. Now, Pawanatan actually comes from two old medieval Javanese words. And, you know, we tend to look at this art and we think, oh, this art is just, it's all traditional. It's actually, you look at all these sculptures, all these paintings and sculptures, all these textiles too, and they're kind of got as much in them, they carry each one of them, carries a kind of collective memory of Balinese history over a thousand years, just as if you go upstairs and you look at a whole lot of of the works upstairs and you can identify if you're studying that area, yeah, there's Renaissance bits coming in here, there's a bit of medieval references, classical reference. That all these works of art, and this is a particularly good example, actually reference this past so that it's not, un, you know, it's not, uh, not unexpected that these ceremonies is given a Javanese name considering how close they are. And of course that word means, for when it means to make pure. In one commentary I read over the weekend, it is like sparkling a, an uncut diamond. It's making, it's bringing out the most positive part of who you are. Now, part of that ceremony is actually to bring to life the chakras. Now, in New Age kind of terminology, you're probably all aware of the chakras. You know, the, it varies according to different ones. There's five chakras. You know, there's uh, there's a head, mouth, throat, heart stomach, the, what they call the secret place, you know what I mean, <laughs> very discreet term for it. Sometimes there's more chakras. Now this ceremony is intended to actually purify those chakras so that you do begin to approach the divine realm. Because, you know, in Balinese, even though Balinese has a lot of Hinduism, Balinese religion, it's also profoundly influenced by Astronesian ancestral beliefs. And, you know, the big difference, one of the big difference between the, the Balinese Hindu worldview, which is influence, and the Indonesian worldview with this notion of ancestral belief, and like the Christian, Judaistic, and Muslim worldview, is in Christian tradition and Judaism and Islam, when you die, actually, the living have an obligation to kind of pray for the dead. You all know requiem masses for the dead or prayers for the dead. Uh, in Islam, there's a whole series of ceremonies after death to ensure that, you know, that the person won't suffer after death, that, you know, after death is... Whereas in the, in the Hindu, Astronesian, uh, the Balinese Hindu, which isn't like Indian Hinduism because it's influenced by these ancient ancestral beliefs, 
the actual, when you die, you become an ancestor. You become like divine-like. And you can bring blessings on the living. It's quite a different relationship. In, Christ, in you know, the book, religions of the book, the dead are passive, as it were. They're waiting in the grave for the day of judgment. Whereas in uh, Astronesian uh, Hinduism, in Balinese Hinduism, the dead become the ancestors who affect our lives and who are present in our lives in a very active way. So this ceremony, this ceremony, which this is a map of, uh, is actually about that starting for an old person starting to move towards that. Now in this ceremony, actually what happens, as I said, the chakras, the parts of the chakra of the body are actually those energy points are brought to life. Uh, and we see here the mantras for them. But I'll start looking at it from the bottom. I'm just reading it from the bottom. Uh, the, I said this morning, I came here, I have, I have a, a, an, an Indonesian book, Aksara Dalam Usadabali, uh, which actually goes through all these mantras. I'm standing here with a book trying to work out which mantra is which, but I couldn't. It was too complicated. <laughs> and this kind of knowledge is, is often regarded as secret anyway, so well, I won't be interpreting it. Some of them I will be. But so let's start with the bottom. So here at the bottom we see these two, what they call nagas, dragons, and they're wrapping around the rather kind of, you know, frisky-looking turtle or a rather kind of you know, aggravated-looking turtle. They're actually embracing it. So nagas are particularly important in, uh, in Balinese cosmology, in Indonesian cosmology. Naga is a Sanskrit Indian term meaning serpent. And they're the chthonic beings. In fact, the rainbow serpent of indigenous Australian belief is part of this. You go right throughout Southeast Asia, everywhere you go, right from southern China with the dragon, the imperial dragon, right down to Australia, this belief in these cosmic serpents, of which in Australia we call, you know, indigenous Australians called the rainbow serpent. In Indonesia, they're called naga. Now, these two nagas are the two nagas that actually, cosmic nagas that wrap around the world. Now, over there, you can actually see them painted. They're painted here. If you look over here later, the Naga's painted here. They, here, one of them's painted here. And he's actually wrapped around. You can see this same turtle here. Uh, there he is, Badawang Nala. And that's a cosmic mountain. So they occur again and again, these Naga's. Now, it's said that these Naga's represent, uh, their names are Antaboga and Vasuka, Vasuki. And according to some people, they represent the two basic elements of earth and water by which this world is created. Now, the Antaboga, I don't know which one's Antaboga, one of them was, was actually through meditation, profound meditation, at the beginning of the cosmos, created the cosmic turtle, Bedawang Nala, who they're wrapping around here, and his companion serpent, the other one, Vasuki. Now, Bedawang Nala's, Actually, so these represent earth and fire. No, sorry, earth and water. The Dawang Nala is actually the cosmic turtle on which the whole world rests. And he was created uh, out of meditation by these, this serpent, this Naga. Now, of course, because the whole world rests, and this is very, typic, very topical at the moment, the whole world rests on this giant cosmic turtle. If the turtle starts to move, there's earthquakes. 
So, of course, Indonesia being the ring of fire, this concern about earthquakes is very strong. So, these turtles, you can see here, they're trying to stabilize. They're, they've wrapped themselves around this turtle to stop it shaking. So, immediately for this ceremony, we have the notion of stability, introducing stability, spiritual stability into your spiritual journey. So, uh, in fact, as Pung said to me, actually, this image is about finding balance in your spiritual journey, finding balance in your life. Anyway, so it's wrapped around it now. Badawang Nala, there's another Badawang Nala. There's a rather cute one over here. You can see here with the two serpents wrapped around. Here Badawang Nala is again and two serpents wrapped around him there. Badawang Nala, the name Badawang actually means uh, fire and Nala is like boiling, simmering. And it's actually a reference to lava coming out of volcanoes. Because, of course, uh, if the world rests on the turtle, that, you know, volcanoes are entrances to the underworld, and, of course, we know what comes out of volcanoes is lava. So that's actually his energy coming out. When Badawang Nala moves, it sends up this lava. His very name means fire, and he has a very... If you look at him, he's kind of done with fiery attributes about him. He's kind of... You can see flames here coming off his head and you can see flames coming out of the Naga's two mouth. So this is like, this image here depicts keeping the balance, very much balance, holding balance, which of course can be read as a, you know, as an outer symbol or inner symbol. And we get this again and again in, uh, in Balinese worldview, this notion of niskala sakala, what you don't see and what you see, what you see and don't see. That everything has this kind of two levels to it. That nothing is accidental. Nothing is purely just, you know, accidental how it is. That everything has to it, you know, it was no accident that that young man who jumped off the tower was called profoundly useful. You know, everything, it's no accident that kind of how things come together, that even today, just after these earthquakes, I'm here standing talking about Bidawang Nala who causes them. So it's a seen and unseen world. So moving up here, we move up here to, the, to this figure standing here. Uh, this figure's interesting. The name of the figure is actually Sanghyang Aji Maya Sandi. And, uh, you know, I'm, to, I'm having this conversation with Pung over the weekend, and it was really interesting. You know, he was saying to me, well, that's like the Atman, the soul. It's a person's soul. So even though it represents a deity, it also represents your soul. You know, it's that you are that. You know, thou art that. You know, you are that divinity yourself. So, uh, you know, the very name, Sanghyang, means like Lord in Balinese. Aji is again another honorific term. In fact, you find it right through the language of the archipelago. It also is a term you find it as Haji, somebody who's done the pilgrimage if you're Muslim, someone's done the pilgrimage to Mecca. Well, it's also in, in Java and Bali. Aji can mean, in the Hindu sense, it means honorific, somebody who's a you know, great learning, a great teacher. Uh, maya, is, maya is the illusion of the world in Buddhism, but in Hinduism, what we're talking about here, it's the power of the gods. That the power of the gods is such that they can create this whole illusionary world. And Sandi, the last part of his name, is bringing together bringing together. So it has this wonderful double mean layers to it. It means both the bringing together of all illusion, 
like focusing on it, but also means the bringing together of power, of spiritual power. It's got a double entendre. So the figure standing, uh, the, underneath it we see here this symbol here, close to the crutch. And that's, we know this is the star of David. It's a, you know, it's a six-pointed star. In uh, Hindu esoteric uh, symbolism, this symbol actually is a linga yoni. I don't know if you know, it represents a linga of Shiva, you know, the phallus of Shiva sitting in the yoni, the female symbol, the total combination of male and female, the perfect combination. And often you find in Bali that Shiva is worshipped, especially at older temples, in the form of a yoni, certainly in India, where, in form of a linga. Wherever you go in India, you'll find these uh, linga yoni. So that actually symbolises, it's not the Star of David, or in Islam, this same symbol is called the Seal of Solomon. But in Balinese Hinduism, it actually represents the perfect combination of male and female elements represented by the upright uh, linga and the yoni in which it sits. Going above them, we see these uh, coming out. These are various. Uh, these are the various sacred syllables. They're called uh, bijaksara in Bali. Uh, in Sanskrit, they're called uh, just bija, and they're what we call seed syllables. Now, in Hinduism, uh, there's this notion that certain letters have profound spiritual energy associated with them. Uh, in, in, you know, the Christian tradition, you only really get with mention of Alpha and Omega. In Islam, it's much more, uh, uh, this idea is much more predominant. Like the first letter of the Arabic alphabet is Alif, which is Alpha, which is used as a symbol for God, the ultimate God. Whereas these seed syllables actually represent different deities. And you can see they're coming out of the body, symbolizing the different chakra points. They're coming from different chakra points. Uh, you can see, for example, there's, a, uh, there's one of the seed syllables right over the secret chakra and then coming out here. I'll get to the top one shortly. Now, seed syllables, what they are, you know, we having the beginning of St. John, uh, the beginning of the Gospel of St. John, you know, the word became flesh. You know, that's actually talking, that's a classic seed syllable statement, that the seed syllable, that a letter, actually transforms into a reality. Now, this is the very basis of tantric practices, actually, that the notion that there's ab when the meditator is performing tantric meditations, and especially when they're doing uh, what's called deity yoga, where they're visualising their chakras, they, in fact, first visualise, for each one, they visualise a lotus at each chakra point, and then on each chakra point, a syllable appears, a tiny syllable glowing, a Sanskrit syllable like you see these here. These are the Balinese versions of them. Uh, and of course, the main ones are om for the head, ah, hum, om, ah, hum, which symbolizes, you know, body, speech, and mind. And then out of that appears a deity. So it's not that just somebody sits down in these meditations and thinks, oh, I'm going to visualize Vishnu, I'm going to visualize Shiva. You know, oh, there he is. They actually, you go into a meditative state where it's a very complex process where you first visualize emptiness. Out of the emptiness arises a lotus. Out of the, on the lotus sits a seed syllable. The seed syllable then transforms into the deity. 
So that each one of these here represents a deity that dwells in part of the body. There are nine deities representing the nine directions, the eight point cardinal points and sub-cardinal points, and then in the centre the main deity, Shiva, which actually each of those dwell in parts of the body, the heart, the liver, and all over the body. Shiva, the main deity, dwells in what's called the Tumpukati, which is an organ which nobody seems to know where it exists, but it's in the body. <laughs> There's more, actually, M Michael gave us a very beautiful uh, talismanic uh, cloth that's over there, which I talk about on the label, which you'll see that the nine deities of the, of the directions plus Shiva in the centre. Now, of course, the most profound, the like what we call in Western kind of New Age esoteric practice, practice the astral body, the most important uh, uh, seed syllable and chakra point, actually according to uh, Balinese Hindu belief, which differs a bit from Indian Hindu belief, is actually just hovering above our head, just sitting on our fontanelle, and it's a lotus, which is om, and you can see that lotus painted up there, the lotus with the letter in it, the om letter in it. Now you might notice that each one of these have above them this sickle and a circle and what looks like a little fly, flame. That drawn above each seed syllable, there's this sickle, circle and little flame. Sickle, circle and little flame. And that actually symbolises, uh, that actually symbolises uh, the, the uh, flame pointing up is like the lingam, the male energy. The circle is like the female energy, the seed, the, the woman's seed out of which we're created. And the sickle actually symbolises the androgynous, the hermaphroditic, the perfect union of male and female. And in practices related to this, once uh, the, the person who was being initiated would have been laid and have these ritual letters drawn on their body and the meditation done, then you meditate, at the end of the meditation, you meditate that the actual seed syllable dissolves into the hermaphroditic uh, crescent moon. The crescent moon then dissolves into the seed of the woman and the seed of the woman then dissolves into the male, the male energy and then dissolves into emptiness. So the meditation finishes. So each one of these are, if you like, they talk about the beginning of the meditation, but they also talk about the end of the meditation, which would have been an essential part of this. So, of course, of all, uh, as always curators in Asian art, as Rusty well knows, is we never have titles for works. <laughs> it's always difficult. We have endless discussions about what we're going to call something <laughs> because objects don't come with titles. People know what they are, but they don't come with titles. So there's always a, you know, well, what exactly... How do we choose a title that captures the essence of what this object is? When most of them, people knew what they were, and they didn't need to have particular titles like Western art tradition where everything's named a title. So this cloth is actually called, the name of this type of cloth is called Rajaan. Now, Raja, you know the term Raja, you know, as in India, king. Uh, so I asked Pung, I said, well, you know, what's your explanation for this cloth being called Karajaan? And he said, well, of course, it's, uh, it's the seed letters, the seed syllables on the body of the king. So this, is, this actually is fascinating because 
you know, in ancient Indonesia, in ancient Java and Bali, the kings were responsible and the queens were responsible. And when I talk about ancient, I'm talking 14th, 15th, 16th century and up to modern times. Rulers were responsible for the spiritual welfare of their kingdom. A king or would, could lose his kind of throne if things happened like earthquakes or famine. So they actually practiced, the rulers actually practiced esoteric tantric practices to ensure the, their kind of safety of their kingdom. And this particular gesture here, it's what we call a mudra, but it's not an Indian mudra. You don't find this gesture in Indian art. You find it appearing in Javanese and Balinese art about the 14th century. That's the first time it appears. So we know that kind of people's beliefs are starting to change a bit. And it seems that this notion of ancestral power and of the power of a, deity, of a king to become a deity was very important. If ever you're in Bali, next time you're in Bali, if you're going up to Kintamani, go past Kintamani, you come to a bend in the road at a place called, there's Chandi Panulisan or Pura Panulisan, stop your car, climb up the steps, and there's an amazing temple up there where there's some extraordinarily beautiful 14th, 15th century statues of kings and queens with this same gesture like this. So this actually references ancient royal practices. So... Karajaan is difficult to translate. I'm still trying to work out. Maybe Michael has some ideas because I can't call it talismanic cloth. We already have one in that. But maybe we'll work out some name to, to, uh, to symbolise. So I'll just, yeah, I think that's probably enough. I'd just like to thank Michael's offer as a gift with Sue Crafter to give it to us as a gift. So next year or sometime in the future. So that's, I greatly appreciate that. And as you all know that... You know, if you look around the labels here, they're all from, you know, so much. 80% of the works are the generosity of Michael. So just to finish, I, rather than clap me, I think we should clap Michael and thank him for the support. <laughs> I'll, 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 just to finish, I'll get into trouble for this later. <laughs> okay, any questions? Well, this is interesting. It's, they said, I asked Pung this, and Pung asked, went back to, you know, I waited a couple of hours, and it came back from Ikatut uh, Bawa. Uh, that it's not, they said, they're saying it's not used. Now, this moves into a whole lot of other areas. They kept reiterating it's a map of the ceremony. So maybe it was to remind the priest what to do, but quite possibly it was just kept, we can see it's been rolled up a lot. It was quite possibly just kept rolled up as an object as a talisman in itself. You know, and a lot of this art you look at, it's actually, they're objects that people believed objects had power. And I read this amazing quote during the week. It was actually talking about Lombok art, the next island, but it said, it's saying, if I can remember it, people don't believe, words without objects don't have power. Objects without words don't have power. But this notion in Austronesian cultures that to communicate something, unless there's an object that embodies that communication, it doesn't hold power. And it might be like the Lontar, the palm leaf manuscripts that no one opens. They just sit there while the priest is talking. But their presence there enforces the presence of the priest's words. So maybe this was like this. But they pull and the priest just kept on coming back to me saying, it's a map. Think of it as a map. So, okay. And what about the other thing? Yeah, up between his feet and down that flame, I guess. The, the flame. 
Look, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> when I know, I'll put it in the label. I'll change the label. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, I'm not at all making excuses for myself, but this desire to ask questions that Westerners often have is you know, often considered a bit kind of almost inappropriate. Like, I could only have asked this many questions because I'd known Pung 20 years because of Michael. You know, that project I worked on, Michael's textiles 20 years ago, that exhibition, that there's no way I could have just gone up to somebody in Bali, a priest, and said, tell me about this. You know, what's this about? That there's knowledge is very, like an Indigenous Australian society, and it's sometimes inappropriate to ask too much, yeah. No, they were completely, this appears to be unique, Michael. So it's, uh, you know, the, they felt that the priest had died or the family had decided it was no longer being used. But it's certainly, and Adrian had said, well, it was interesting, Adrian Vickers, when he came here, who, you know, has the knowledge of international collections, said he'd never seen anything like it. So it's a, it's a totally unique piece. Yeah, it's a totally unique piece. Yeah. Yeah, sorry. Well, it's more Gone to, to discover this meaning. Mm. So, for the everyday people in Bali, they would not be familiar with Well, no, Pung, yeah, no, see, Pung, when I. Yeah, exactly, like Pung, who's very knowledgeable, like, you know, I worked with on speaking with cloth, who's extraordinary, whose grandfather was a Dalang, which means, you know, he comes from a family of cultural connoisseurs. He thought it was a shroud. Yeah, when I sent him the photo, he thought it was a show. Now, maybe at the back of his mind, he was thinking, well, maybe it's not. I don't know. I didn't say to him, well, were you 100% certain it was a shroud? But he was quite, the initial part of our conversation, he was quite happy to call it the shroud. And then there's a point he came back and said, well, it's not a shroud. It's a king cloth, karajan, you know, talismanic king's cloth, yeah. Yeah, right? I'll just add one last question. Uh, you, you've been engaged... Forty years. Have you noticed? You know, it's exceptionally complex what you're talking about. Yeah. You know about it is, is amazingly complex. Uh, do you, have you found that spirituality in Bali has changed? Oh, immensely, immensely, immensely. And but you know, it's kind of it. It obviously was changing. You know, these cultures. It's like people talk about indigenous Australian cultures. Yet we know in Kakadu there's seven distinct styles of art documented in Kakadu rock art. So it obviously wasn't static for 40,000 years, you know. If we look at our own art history compared to that, you know, it's changed as, you know, not much more than that. And it's the same with, you know, in, in Indonesia, and I mean, one of the wonderful things about Indonesian scholarship at the moment, art scholarship, is we're starting to get a really nuanced reading of the changes, and things are changing all the time. Like, for example, in the 1930s, there seemed to be a big upsurge of interest in black magic which people put down to the result of the horrific Dutch, you know, massacres that occurred with the invasion. And then again, with the, uh, with the 1966, uh, the, you know, the communist revolution and the, the killings that occurred in Bali then, and no one, not a single person, you know, tens of thousands of people were executed, killed in that civil war. And then after that, with the new order, there was an interest again in, in black magic and esoteric arts. So clearly it rises and falls, rises and falls. And, but nowadays, you know, like you, you talk to most Balinese, you know, once they start to talk, people believe very strongly still in that. But, 
you know, the com complexities of these ceremonies I was talking about, the 13 ceremonies, are getting less and less complex. People don't have time and there's, things are changing. Mm. Okay, thank you and have a good week. Have a good week.